Outliers in Education is brought to you by CEE, the Center for Educational Effectiveness. Better data, better decisions, better schools. To find out more, visit effectiveness.org. The link between poverty and performance in schools is not what you think it is, or at least it doesn't have to be. Today, we're looking at ways to disrupt poverty sway over our educational system on this episode of Outliers in Education. That's what we're all about in letting our kids be successful. If you want to achieve something, then surround yourself with the people you want to become. Because kids are kids in small districts, rural districts, urban, kids are kids. Welcome back to another episode of Outliers in Education, coming to you from the Center for Educational Effectiveness. I'm your host, Eric Price, here with Eric Squared, my partner in podcasting, Mr. Eric Bowles. You know, the whole point of this podcast is to help shed light on the educational practices out there that are really making a positive difference. Our jumping off point is the groundbreaking outlier study released last year by the Center for Educational Effectiveness. And one of the key elements in that study was to take a look at how and why certain schools with lots of students from low-income homes were actually succeeding beyond expectations. Bowles, I know we call it the outlier study for short, but the official title is much longer and it's got a lot to do with poverty, right? It sure does. And I'm going to go ahead and read the official title because it's been a while. The, the official title is Characteristics of Positive Outlier Schools, Illuminating the Strengths of American Indian, Alaska Native, Black, Latino, Latina, and Students Experiencing Poverty. And what's unique about that last factor is oftentimes, unfortunately, the United States Students are really victims of their demographic destiny, but it does not have to be that way. Just because you come from a certain zip code or live in a particular neighborhood where you're more likely to be a student experiencing poverty doesn't mean you can't achieve at high levels. And what we know about education in the United States is it's the closest thing we've got to a great equalizer. So the work in ameliorating poverty and ensuring that our kids who are experiencing poverty can achieve really is some of our most important mission-driven work in public education. Well, today's guest has been looking deeply at these factors, even before the outlier study was but a twinkle in the eyes of our research team at CEE. Kathleen Budge has spent time more than three decades in education. She's an associate professor emerita of educational leadership at Boise State. She's got a couple of books, Turning High Poverty Schools into High Performing Schools, and Disrupting Poverty, Five Powerful Classroom Practices. Kathleen, welcome to the show, and we're so glad you're here. Thank you for having me. So right out of the gates, uh, we can't help but notice that your work really runs in a parallel direction to uh, the outlier study in the way that you look at high-performing schools um, with significant poverty and minority demographics. Uh, why is this such an important place for us to be looking at uh, when we talk about schools and that improvement process? Great question. Um, the, you know, when we started doing this, our first study was in 2010. Um, and when I say we, I should, I should introduce up my co-author, Bill Parrott, uh, and I are the two that have written the books for ASCD. And each of those books were based on a study. And the first study in 2010 was of, uh, seven schools across the country, um, that were Outliers. And at the time, it was kind of funny because outliers, there was controversy over whether you study outliers or not. Like, why would you study the exception? Like, what does that, you know, what is that? What are we going to learn from that? Right. And, um, 
I've come to learn, I've come to believe that it is critical to study the outliers, particularly as we look at poverty. And this could probably be equally true of race, but for sure in, ter- in terms of what I can say for what, you know, on my journey has been. We have so many stereotypes about people who live in poverty, about poverty itself that are so embedded in the U.S. culture that teachers cannot, educators cannot be help but be impacted by those stereotypes. And so one of the reasons you study outliers is to show what is possible. And you start to look at these schools and you get inside of them and you realize there, you know, Superman isn't the principal. Uh, Gates didn't drop $2 billion on them. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, uh, they're regular, they're, they're typical schools often. Sometimes we've studied both public charters. Well, all charters are public, public schools that are charters and public schools that are not charters. Mostly we've studied schools that are not charters. And, um, you find that these things that they do are doable. And that's what is so important about what is, it's like we say in our latest, you know, we then repeated the study just a few years ago and that that version, that second edition of turning high poverty schools into high performing schools came out in 2020 just as the pandemic hit, by the way. And, um, we, you know, we, we say it, these, both of these studies and your study too, which is so like we could map our framework onto your study or your, you could do that with ours. Um, show what's possible. They are, they are examples of the possible. And I think that is so important because one of the most insidious things that happens in a low performing high poverty school is that the beliefs of the people in those schools and all the, and the community around them are so limited for, for themselves and for their children. And, and it's not that they don't have hopes and dreams because they do, but there's been, uh, you know, for a variety of things we'll get into, but these show, these schools show what, a, what is possible and how it is possible. Well, Kathleen, you stole my thunder a little bit. You're uh, one step ahead of me as a guest, which I just want to point out doesn't make you unique amongst the podcast <laughs> guests. <laughs> but one of the things I was really struck by, and you know, talking about the uh, earlier book, um, Disrupting Poverty, Five po- uh, Powerful Classroom Practices, looking at those five classroom practices and the 11 common conditions inside of our outlier study, just want to reiterate that I think that was a direct match. Yeah. One of the things that's always fascinated uh, me about your work, you, uh, your husband, who's also your uh, research and writing partner, Bob Barr, happened to be at Boise State at that same time. Can you share with us what was what's unique about Boise State or what was unique about Boise State at that time that incubated so many great minds uh, in the College of Ed working this particular issue? Well, first of all, Boise State, they have a real spirit. The university in general, I would just say, has a real spirit of innovation, has been recognized for that, actually. Um, the program that I got to design, I was so lucky because um, I had just graduated from the University of Washington in their brand new doctoral program, Leadership for Learning. And so I had a whole uh, sort of concept of what I could take there. And there was a bunch of faculty that had worked on it prior to me coming. Uh, and they'd worked with Gonzaga and with the University of Washington. So that Boise State program was really Washington, very much Washington influenced. And it was, it was different. It was different than anything the state was offering at the time. Um, I, I feel real proud of what was done there. Kathleen, getting getting back to some of that uh, poverty uh, mindset, um, I, I think that, uh, in fact, I just spent some time at some, in some school districts that meet that demographic. 
Um, it seems almost like there's uh, an, an expectation of, yeah, we can't get there. So when you take a look at some of those outliers, what, what was different about some of those that kind of got over this? Yeah, this is expected. This is what we're supposed to do. What's the delineating factor that allows them to kind of get through that? This is such a critical question. And honestly, one of the biggest hurdles is this mindset thing. And um, we call it mental. We draw on the work of, of David Schoen and Chris Ardress. Uh, and we talk about mental maps or mental models. Here's what we have found. We have found that when we go to study uh, a school that is already transformed into a high-performing school, like the outliers, uh, they will tell us that they didn't, interestingly, it wasn't a direct attack on people's mental models. It wasn't, that isn't what they did. It wasn't like trying to change people's hearts by convincing them of something. What really happened is they took action. And that leaders, when I say leaders, leaders took action and it was not just administrators. That was really important. It was a really shared, distributed uh, model for leadership. And they took action that created greater self-efficacy and eventually greater collective efficacy. And when teachers began to see what they could do and how that could impact kids, their mental models around what poverty meant, what you could do to disrupt it, what they were capable of doing to mediate it, uh, changed. And they really started to question. That's one piece. Second piece, relationships, relationships, relationships. That's the other really key piece is that they got to know their, again, um, no school really told us we did a big study on systemic inequity in terms of class or classism. Nobody told us that. What they did, though, was they got to know their kids and families really well. And in getting to know their kids and families and being open to their kids and families. And, and on top of that, I would say when we go in and do work, we do start to challenge. And we that's why in both of our books, we will we'll include a section that is on, you know, those the typical stereotypes or myths about poverty. So we start to at least prompt that thinking of, are we sure about what we believe and that challenging our implicit bias and that sort of thing. But what, what, what you will find is between the relationships and the increased self-efficacy slash collective teacher efficacy, people's hearts and minds then begin to change about what is possible and what's, and what's possible of, of themselves, of their colleagues, and of their kids, of their students. And when you talk about that mental model, um, you, you're really saying you've got to break out of a, a way of thinking that that has been normed. Uh, and then to just say, this is possible, it, how, how would you put that in layman's terms? Yeah, we really focus in on teacher expectation. And we do that because we have 55 years, at least, of research to support how important teacher expectation is, uh, how, how it, teachers' expectations are, how impactful they are to their students, for good or for bad. Teachers' expectations of the students? Of the students, yes. Uh, and we really focus in on that as this, as, and that's why it's one of the, um, powerful classroom practices. You know, after relationships, after you start to know that, but boy, you, you, nothing else is going to happen until you build relationships with your kids. That's paramount. Yeah, yeah. Then the second thing is challenging 
your own, what you may not even have consciously holding it. You're not consciously holding in your mind what you think are the possibilities for yourself or your children, but particularly your kids. And so we talk about the history of, you know, rigid ability grouping and tracking. We talk about the Pygmalion effect. We, you know, we talk about some of those things and then we, we couple that with that, what we know about stereotypes and how deeply embedded they are and that we all have mental maps. I mean, still to this day, I quite, I wonder to myself when I walk through a neighborhood that even my own, in my own hometown, where I walk through a neighborhood, why I'm so afraid or I'm more afraid than if I'm walking through a very obviously upper or middle class neighborhood. You know, what is that in my mind about poverty? And, and even with all I book knowledge, I know, and all of the lived experiences I've had with my own family, as well as, you know, in schools, it, they, they are just very pervasive. And so it's a combination of those things. But we really get at it in layman's terms around teacher expectations and changing, raising your expectations of yourself, others, and your kids. And the fact that we've seen it hope happen over and over. And as your, as your study would show. Yeah, very much intertwined. Well, it's time for us to take a short break. We'll be back with uh, more from Kathleen Budge right after this on Outliers in Education. The annual Women's Leadership Conference is back, returning to Spokane this October. Designed to unite and empower women educators, at the Women's Leadership Conference, you'll be surrounded with the support and inspiration you need to rise to the next level. Leading women educators from across the U.S. will help you develop leadership skills, work-life balance, conflict resolution, decision-making, and much more. Rise together at the second annual Women's Leadership Conference, October 13th through 15th. Brought to you by RLR Leadership Consulting. Clock hours available Register today at randyrussell.org. That's randyrussell.org. Welcome back. Today on Outliers in Education, we're enjoying some time with author and educator Kathleen Budge from Boise State University. She's the author of Turning High Poverty Schools into High Performing Schools. Uh, she also has a video series called Disrupting Poverty in Education in Elementary and Secondary Classrooms. Kathleen, when we were talking, I, I just can't uh, help but think about all of this overlap and intersectionality that we're seeing with your study, your experience, our experience, our study, um, just about relationships changing that, that model. What, what do you see that really uh, allows some of those people to change, like change that to say, okay, and I also heard you say, just start doing the stuff, right? Like, yeah, absolutely. Um, so th there's some that just can't get past that, those starting blocks. What, what, what do you see there? So, um, you know, we've really done a lot of work. One of the interesting things is you can learn a lot from, from outliers that have done it. And then, uh, I think Richard Elmore years ago said, you know, we can learn a ton from schools who haven't yet done it, but are on the way of to doing it. And that is, that's, you know, where Bill and I work mostly is in, you know, when we go in, it's not a school's asking us in because they're high performing already. And, and they, and so you see graduated set of things. Um, we come in with the, with the mindset that, um, almost every teacher, every educator we meet cares about kids, wants to make a difference, wants kids to succeed. They want to succeed. Um, you know, that themselves, 
uh, and that there is a lot of power in the collective. And so we set up, we, we work very hard first on establishing a leadership team that is truly a leadership team. This is not a leadership team that does, you know, calendar and the sunshine committee and stuff like that. This is a leadership team that leads the improvement of instruction empowers teachers. There's a layer of sort of that shared teacher leadership that matters towards those te- that can't, those can't get their teachers. The, the next layer is, um, things like job embedded instructional coaching. It, it's can, it can be very powerful as one model. Uh, another model is that uh, is, uh, P- PLCs well done, well done PLCs. Sometimes if you're lucky, you get both of those that feed off of each other, that model. Then, of course, there's a, a solid principal who's an instructional leader, ideally in the background, who when you've, you know, when you've set the direction and you've built the commitment, like you, you folks said, there was a collective commitment. That was one of the conditions you found in Outlers. When you've built that and most of the people are on on the train, go, go in that direction. There's a few that aren't. Then we, oh, we usually come from what is it that that teacher needs? It's a supportive sort of piece. What skills? What knowledge? What experiences? Uh, what trust level? You know, we just were working in a school where we've written a draft. We hope it's going to be published in the December issue, December, January issue of ASCD on a school district that is not a high performing school district, but Throughout the pandemic, we worked with them and they actually have rebounded to their pre-pandemic academic achievement levels and increased slightly. And they have built in some, many of their schools, some, the collective efficacy to improve now. They are just on that precipice. There are one or two teachers in each of those schools that are just can't, probably just aren't going to get there. I mean, it's possible. Uh, and, and, but maybe not. Maybe they will. And so that third layer is that principal, typically, who's the instructional leader who has the hard conversations, who's, who looks at it and says, is it attitude? Is it, you know, is it willingness or is it uh, knowledge and, and skills? I'm, I'm, I'm hearing that, that some of those staff have kind of got to get to a tipping point of things need to get better. They're, they're not good enough and we need to change. Is that accurate? You have to build a sense of urgency around a moral imperative. You do. And, and, you know, different things will hit different people. Some people will just be like, they can look at the data and immediately they're committed to it. Others will question the data, will question the test, will quit, you know, that isn't what's going to commit them. What's going to commit them is seeing their kids do something they never thought their kids could do or seeing themselves do something they never thought their kid, they could do, uh, f- f- towards those, their, their students. So there's different things, but yes, there be, there does always in some way. And sometimes it was pretty, like we saw leaders that really ranged from it's my way or, or the highway to very quiet giants, you know, just, uh, who just kind of pushed from behind, but, but both leaders were building a sense of, of urgency around a, a moral imperative. Hey, Kathleen, I'm really struck by, like, like EP said, sort of the intersectionality in our study, but not just our study. We, we absolutely love the work out of Gonzaga that you referenced earlier. Chuck Selene and Suzanne Gertz were really disciples of their work. Uh, had them on an earlier podcast, so I'm always kind of drawing parallels to relationship, relationship, relationship. 
Yep, I listened to their to their podcast. That was one of them. I've, about, about, I've listened to about 10 of your podcasts and their, theirs was what I listened to. I was like, yep, yep. <laughs> so it seems like, you know, whether it's in your work, whether it's in the outlier study, whether it's uh, in uh, Chuck and Suzanne's work out at Gonzaga, um, we we know better. Uh, and I think it, I think more than just in the Northwest, we know better. But really, when you look at achievement in the United States in the last 20 plus years, especially desegregated for kids experiencing poverty, um, we don't do better by and large because we're all talking about studying outliers. So what do you think the barriers are to these methodologies that we know clearly work that, uh, where there's so much overlap? Um, but there's a huge gap in what we're, what we're studying in research and what we're implementing in practice. Can you speak to that a bit? Oh, I, I definitely can <laughs> speak to this one. And I don't, not from necessarily a, uh, I don't have a solution, but I have some insights into what I, I think are, are part of those barriers. First of all, um, in February, last February, Bill and I keynoted for the ESEA national conference. And the title of our keynote was, you know, why is this uncommon work so uncommon? Because really, if we go back and look at effective schools, research. Um, and the fact that we've known what an effective school in Washington, you know, the nine characteristics of effective schools that was generated off of the, you know, seven correlates and all of that. I mean, decades ago, we've known what a basic effective school is, and we've improved upon what that means in terms of equity and culturally responsive schools and that sort of thing. Here's what I do think, though. I don't think we can start by assuming that we all know better because there's a gap between the university and practice. Um, and that I have all, I, that would be a whole different podcast if we were going to talk about that one. You might oh. have some disciples here that would agree with I you. I was going to say, yeah. well, you've got to fun with that. Yeah. That's a, that's a different podcast. But there to, I am always, for us, you know, we, we, I come to be so thinking so commonplace that the knowledge about outliers is so commonplace. Uh, and, and it isn't like we'll go into a school and people will be like, really? So tell us more about these schools. And this really does happen and it happens everywhere. And so one of them is how do we defeat, how, how, how do we have better diffusion of information that is, that's receptive and how do we get, uh, uh, other things out of the way so that we can actually talk about these schools that are ordinary, but extraordinary, you know, kind of thing. And, and so I think that's a part of the problem is we can't assume that we do know better, but I do think that knowing better does move people. Um, so once, you know, once we could be better about diffusing, you know, d diffusion of information that, that would get us at least part of the way. Then we've got a lot of complicated pieces. I mentioned the one about deeply embedded stereotypes. Um, uh, one of the things that has distressed me for a while now is sort of the lack of public in public education. Like we need to put public back into public education. Like we need to care about other people's children. We all need to care about our children and other people's children, you know? So that's a part of the problem. It's that there's a whole set of cultural things beyond education, but within education too, that are, um, you know, maintaining the status quo and are maintaining a higher quality of education being provided to to more affluent children, to white children, uh, than 
than we see. So what are those sorts of policy, what kind of policy can we, uh, or practice can we bring to bear on that? And then the third thing that I think we got to do is we got to take care of our teachers. We have to do, we have to professional, we have to figure out the policy that provides a true profession for teachers. Uh, whether I know it's, I think about elevating it. I think about investing in it as a profession. Um, it, we have to look at, perhaps look at other countries to, to, to ask ourselves, what can we learn from other countries where the profession is more elevated? We've got to take care of them because we're in a crisis right now. You know, we, we're working with a school in school district in South Carolina that a week before school started, they had 400 openings. Oh, 400. They're a larger school district, but we were in a crisis. A few years ago, I sat at a table with a group of teachers in Arizona. There were about eight of us. I didn't know any of them. I was just sitting there talking to them. Six of those teachers worked a second job just to make a living. I mean, you know, we got to do something to, we have some many things, a set of things that elevate the profession. And all of this isn't even talking about poverty per se, because, you know, good schools for all kids are good schools for kids who live in poverty. It's good schools for kids of color. It's good schools for kids with disabilities. You know, it's good schools for you know, transgender kids and kids that are gay or, you know, just honestly, good schools are good schools. But those things are getting, I I believe those are three things that are getting in the way. What would you say to either, uh, you know, a leader at a super or a principal level to say, okay, here's, here's how you could actually do it. I know you got a group out there that's going to be upset if you start to change things because it, what you're saying is it's not okay. We got to do things differently. What would you say to them to say, hey, here, here's a really decent roadmap that you can start. Cause I hear you say, just start. Here's where you can start. And then here's how you can chip away. How, how would you give somebody some wisdom in that process? Okay. So I would say two different things to the principals than I would say to a district level leader, because I think they need to do two different things to a principal committed to this. The first thing I would say is you need to build a team around you. So you need a leadership team. And that's where I would start. I start looking at the change agents, the P the, the, and it wouldn't be representative, like drop stuff like department and grade level mm. representing who are the just change people agents. who believed. Yes. People are believers who have already a moral commitment or you, you suspect they do, even if sometimes they will be the burnt out ones, but you know that at one time, you know, how do you regenerate that? You take, you start with that leadership team. That's one level of things. The other thing you do, uh, uh, the other thing that we've seen in most um, high, high poverty, low performing schools is you actually have to start with core instruction. You're never, ever going to intervene your way to high performance. You can't have enough levels of support if you're not doing teaching well first time. To start and with that green zone, right? So you start with, so if you're, you know, if you're secondary school, you, you might do, you'll do this differently than an elementary school. But even in, in our, even in our 12 schools that we studied just recently, even in the secondary schools, they're still focusing primarily, interestingly, on literacy. So they're, they're in, in different ways, but so you're starting on a common understanding of what excellence 
or even good looks like in literacy instruction. I mean, that's just a very concrete thing. And you have a leadership team that's operating around a moral commitment and pushing it out. You have teachers who are learning how to be better instructors. Those two levels. At the district level, you are all about supporting your your principals to take those risks. You've got their back. You have to. We have a chapter in our in our second edition that we didn't have in our first because we learned so much in 10 years about the way districts fail high perform high performing high poverty schools. They fail them and so they don't make they don't sustain their gains. And um, there's a set of things that districts need to do. They need to make sure superintendent needs to make sure the board's on on board. Uh, because that superintendent may have to stand by a principal that is really taking some flack because they have, you're pushing against the status quo big time. It, that flack could come from staff. That flack could come from families. It could, you know, you never know, but there's a whole set of things that districts can do to support, uh, a, a principal who is trying to make the change. We still very much believe as in the unit of change as being, the school that that that's still our focus, but we also know that the district system around that school makes a huge difference. And so, what you know, have you communicated to your board? Have you are you developing your principles? Are you ready to stand by them? Um, are you sure they're seeing eye to eye with that? Do you have the vision and urgency yourself as the superintendent, assistant soup, whoever you are? Thank you. It was was that pragmatic? Oh, that enough? was. Perfect. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Absolutely spot on. So my question is, as a practitioner, school starts next week in most of Washington state. As a practitioner, wow, if you did one thing differently uh, to, to really meet the needs of these kids experiencing poverty over the next year, what might that be? Okay. So there are two things that come to mind that I can't, I'm not sure I can choose between them and they're probably tied together. Commit to really getting to know your kids as whole kids whole kids. You know, who are they? What are their dreams? What are their aspirations? Um, who is their family? Where, you know, what is their heritage, their racial identity? How do they identify um, in whatever way? Get to know the kids. But clo- so closely related to that is be willing to be reflective. So be willing to be reflective in what you think, in what you do. You know, I I, I know we've been talking about reflective practitioners since the 1980s, but man, if you want to talk about people who disrupt poverty, that is one of the, that is one of those key professional characteristics of those folks is they are reflective. What is it? What does that look like, Kathleen? If I'm reflective, reflective or I'm reflecting, what does that look like? Yeah. I take an inquiry stance almost always sort of as a way of being. I'm like curious. I'm willing to take risks. I'm innovative and I'll fail and it's okay. And I'll even share that with kids. I'll even say, you know, like I tried this and this is what I was trying to get at guys. And But the whole idea is that they are, they in, in practice, it becomes like a way of being. Some people have formalities. They'll, you know, they'll journal, they'll keep a kid watching records. They'll do all kinds of things. You know, we had a teacher that kept a thing that was almost like a baseball card with stats on it, you know, and a middle school teacher to keep. But 
Uh, and then, and they're always willing to look at their practice and their first propensity when a child fails or their kids fail a test or whatever is to think, what do I do? What can I do differently versus, oh, well, it was the day after Halloween and these kids all come from a place of blah, blah, blah. And it starts, you know, blaming kids and families. And that's something you can learn. It's a habit you can develop. And so it's more like a habit of mind that you develop that if is so impactful. It'd be one of those two or both. Right. Yeah. Well, I think both. And I'd hate to see that baseball card on me. The uh, errors uh, column in middle school would be uh, (laughs) immense. Hey, Kathleen, we're at the point now in our uh, program where this is where we just ask Bolsey to say, okay, baby, let's see your summarization skills. So Bowles, what do you got as a wrap up for us? So Kathleen, it may have looked like I haven't been paying attention, but I've actually been uh, enraptured in everything that you had to say today. So I, I'm going to set this backdrop, this summary with just an observation. I kind of uh, jotted down as, as uh, you know, you talked about all the things that you talked about. Um, our society is in crisis right now. We have over 140 million Americans living within two times the federal poverty line or below. A disproportionate number of those uh, individuals are children. So ensuring that we lift children out of poverty so that we have a society that sustains beyond us really may be the challenge and the charge of our our time. So I think this was an incredibly important topic today. Uh, My theme in wrapping this up, and I'm going to try to synthesize this a variety of ways, is there's just tremendous intersectionality right now uh, through a number of disciplines, a number of practices. We've got We've got some different labels on some of these things that I think are confusing, uh, especially to uh, young teaching staff. I think about myself as a 31-year-old principal in rural Washington State. That was a long time ago, actually last century. Um, (laughs) And and, and being befuddled by some of these labels and by what seems like uh, conflicting policy implications. So I think we're going to be able to take a small bite out of the apple here and and create some clarity. I'm just amazed and doing a little bit of research uh, before we came on it. You know, your five classroom practices, everything that uh, you and Bill have researched and the 11 common conditions in our outlier study, just just so much synergy there. Uh, love what you had to say about, you know, how do how do we start to take small bites to really get people to change their their mental models and their assumptions around uh, children experiencing poverty uh, for sure? Um, like so many have said in so many different ways uh, on our podcast, uh, what we've come to believe, love the fact that you referenced the nine characteristics, our surveys at CEE are still based on uh, the nine characteristics with with two uh, additions over time. Uh, so some of that old research is really good research. Um, but relationships, getting to know kids and their families. Uh, we talk a lot about family and community engagement. Um, really that commitment to getting to know the whole child yeah, it is job one. I think it's also job one with a principal when they come on board uh, with their staff, incidentally. Uh, those, those two things are incredibly um, linked. And then having high expectations and holding uh, children to high expectations, as well as I think the parallel with principals and staffs can happen when those relationships are established. So it's not a chicken egg scenario that egg definitely comes before the chicken, but those are incredibly important things that we heard. And then just so much synergy in terms of what we heard from other podcasts. I love the Gonzaga reference, love everything that uh, Suzanne and Chuck have to say about uh, powerless to powerful and really first starting with that relational trust. So again, there's just that bedrock uh, around relational trust. Uh, Greg Benner in his work says, a lot of the same things around uh, around the whole child work and his his eight year model that was incredibly successful in in Tacoma and has been successful otherwise across the country. Almost all of those models start with a commitment to shared and distributed leadership. 
uh, and really identifying leaders at all levels. That, that leadership is a collective act. It's, it's not an act of heroic isolation at the, at the principalship or the superintendency. Um, high functioning PLCs are an example of that manifestation of, of distributed leadership. And we heard Janelle Keating talk about that so brilliantly, uh, in an earlier podcast as well. And then you tied it all together, hitting on what Pete Hall talked about with regard to reflective, reflective practice. So Kathleen said she listened to about 10 of our podcasts. I, I don't think she probably <laughs> needed to have listened to 10 of our podcasts to draw these conclusions because she's obviously deeply vested and, uh, and uh, down uh, down a profound trail with her own work. But it's phenomenal to tie all these things together. Um, one of the quotes that really comes to mind uh, for me is, you know, work out of Chuck's work. And this was a big theme of what we talked about today is, and I, I'm paraphrasing. So if, if Chuck, if you're listening, I apologize for butchering this, but so much of this work is common sense, but it hasn't yet become common practice. And we talked about kind of all the reasons why. And then I, I, I love the call, the moral imperative, this sense of urgency. We need to care about other people's children. That is not just an education thing. That's what needs to happen in every community across the United States. And we need to care about our teachers and elevating uh, and investing in the teaching profession. Um, If we don't do those two things, uh, regardless of where we sit on the political or ideological spectrum, we're probably in pretty significant trouble. And if we do those things, we can ensure that the kids who take our place uh, are going to be whole and healthy. we're going to see society continue to prosper. And that really is our collective moral imperative. So Kathleen, thanks for setting us all straight today uh, and giving us so much to think about. Uh, You're an amazing podcast guest. I'm going to turn it back over to EP for the wrap up, wrap up. I I have to agree. You were like a beautiful cliff notes of all the stuff we've been talking about. So well done. Bulls, nice summary. You brought a tear to my eye and now I'm going to have to pause just for an emotional time. Kathleen, how did we do? Anything we missed? Anything you'd like to add here at the end? I just I'm grateful and thank you for, you know, giving me the opportunity to to talk with you today. Well, it was our pleasure and the pleasure of our listeners as well. Uh, And our thanks to Kathleen, co-author of Turning High Poverty Schools into High Performing Schools. You can get that on Amazon or ASCD. Um, And thanks for sharing with us today. Just those things that we know we need to start doing. Thank you. And I'd like to thank you uh, for listening to another episode of Outliers in Education. You can find this episode and all of our podcasts at effectiveness.org. If you'd like to find out how to gather the data you need to help drive positive change in your school or district, take a moment to visit CEE, the Center for Educational Effectiveness, at effectiveness.org. Better data, better decisions, better schools. Effectiveness.org.